can everyone alphabetically tell me what you had for breakfast? So we'll start with Allie. Well, that was a long time ago. Um, I went really classy and had Pop-Tarts this morning. Ooh, ow. <laughs> I'm so judging you. <laughs> Judge away, they were delicious. Coming up on It's Not Human Sexuality, a conversation with health science teacher, Allie Ham. As soon as they don't get a reaction out of you, that there's really no point in reacting themselves. And there's still topics that are more sensitive and they get goofy with them. But in general, if you set the stage of, I'm going to be professional and we're gonna talk about our bodies, they move on pretty darn quickly. The class definitely was a success in part because of everything that you guys did for me. Welcome to the latest episode of It's Not Human Sexuality. I'm Mandy Johnson. And I'm Dr. Betsy Cairo, or Dr. B. And we are here today with a fellow educator to discuss the state of sexual education in general and definitely in the time of COVID. For many people, the phrase sex education or sex ed brings uncomfortable memories of awkward teachers getting red in the face as they struggle to say the word penis aloud in class. For others, it is the memory of being slut-shamed by a well-intentioned teacher who either believes or is told to teach absence only. It is memories of being separated by sex to discuss the upcoming changes of puberty. But for a rare few who had teachers who enjoy and are even passionate about reproductive health, their memories are quite different. The quality of education is dependent on your zip code in this country and the political climate of that zip code. What is taught about sex and reproduction is either further influenced by the personal beliefs, knowledge, and level of comfort with the topics of the individual teachers who work within the restrictions imposed by the state and or district. Our education system places more emphasis on the memorization of facts, dates, and formulas, most of which can easily be found with the push of a button on the internet, than it does on the basic facts of life, including how our bodies function, why some decisions can be so confusing, and how to navigate the challenges that we all face as human beings. Reproductive health education is the biology, psychology, and sociology of being. It is who we are. We are in need of a more comprehensive, medically accurate curriculum taught by trained teachers who are knowledgeable and comfortable enough to hold discussions with and answer questions from our young people. Sex ed, as it's called in most schools, is difficult enough during the best of times and has been made even more challenging with all the changes in education since the start of the pandemic. COVID has changed face-to-face -face teaching completely, and this has had a big impact on teachers' ability to connect with their students in the way that is necessary for a high-quality reproductive health education. With us today is a teacher who is knowledgeable and highly motivated to teach teens about reproductive health, even during a pandemic. Allie Hamm is a science teacher at an alternative high school in Colorado and has been teaching for four years. Last spring, she piloted the Look Both Ways textbook and curriculum in a semester-long class for high school focused on reproductive health. It was in the middle of this semester that the pandemic hit and schools were forced to go remote for the first time ever. Allie made the transition to remote learning with this curriculum and is here to share her experience with all of us. Welcome, Allie. Thanks. Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time to be here with us today. 
love to hear a little bit about your experience as a teacher and how you became involved with Look Both Ways. And just for people who don't really know um, what Look Both Ways is, it's a nonprofit organization focused on the foundations of reproductive health education. So Ali, tell us about your experience. So I got into teaching a little bit later in my career, not that I'm late in my career, I guess, but uh, it wasn't my <laughs> first goal in life. And I'm really glad that I found my way here in a roundabout journey. Um, science has always been a big passion of mine. So I started with whatever classes they would give me and slowly built. I really like life sciences and big picture sciences. So started with biology and earth science and earth science is not my groove. <laughs> so <laughs> I got rid of that as quickly as I could. Um, and then I really enjoyed teaching anatomy a lot. And my students also really liked that class. They love learning about their bodies. And they kept asking me, why don't you teach health? And first off, I thought, you know, it's normally under family and consumer sciences. And we also didn't offer it at our school at that time. So our students either came to us having already taken health or had to take it online, which makes a lot of sense when you're a teenager with a lot of questions that we would stick you in an online class where you read some information and take some multiple choice questions and you're done with the class, right? Clearly yeah, you makes learn a lot, a lot about sense. your body. Yeah. <laughs> so I had enough requests from students that I took it to the principal and he supported me and I finally got to teach a health curriculum. And one of my colleagues knew of Betsy's curriculum and put me in touch with her. And it was a great partnership. Awesome. Well, had you taught reproductive health at all before adopting the Look Both Ways textbook? Or were you just doing anatomy? I taught basic reproduction and anatomy. So we talked about reproductive anatomy itself. And we talked about pregnancy and growth of, of fetus. And that was pretty much as far as we went with it. I teach more of a functional medical anatomy class because that's my passion. So my class was based on case studies, but I really didn't get to delve into reproductive health as much as I would have liked to. All right. So um, you piloted the, the textbook and the curriculum starting last January. What yes. was your experience with that? Did you, you know, what did you like it? Did you enjoy teaching the class? Tell us a little bit about how you um, I loved that. teaching this class so much. I would have told you beforehand that there was no way I could have a class that I enjoyed teaching more than anatomy because that's always been my baby. But <laughs> health is definitely my new favorite class. <laughs> um, my students were amazing. They asked a ton of questions, surprised me with how much they were willing to ask me and how much they trusted me. Um, so that was very flattering because if a student's willing to ask you things about their own sexuality and their own sexual health, I mean, that's a sign of trust you don't take lightly, right? Absolutely. So we had a great time. They learned to trust each other really quickly. We set some good boundaries and they knew what they said in my room wasn't supposed to leave my room. And we just dove in head first. All right. Do you, I, I know that we, um, the summer before you taught, we, we had worked with you on the curriculum and yes. the professional development in that piece. Uh, was that helpful? Did that help navigate some things for you or? Very much because unfortunately at my school, we have a really small science department. When I started, there were two full-time science teachers and now we have one and a half science teachers. So from my first year of teaching, I've not really had very many science collaborators and I've basically developed curriculum on my own, which has gone mostly okay, but to have a fully developed curriculum and have experts who could walk me through their take on it and how you would approach different topics and different lessons you've been successful with, that was invaluable. 
Great. Was there a particular moment that semester when you knew the students were really getting it uh, or benefiting from your class? And can you tell us about that? There are two that stand out, so I'll start with the first one. One of my anatomy students used to joke with me that urine is stored in the balls because he thought that was hilarious. (laughs) And he was in my anatomy class, so he knew that was not correct, but he said it just to annoy me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that he had started sharing that around school. And somehow, as that happens in high schools, all of the students took that to be fact because he said, oh, oh what we learned in anatomy was pee is stored in the balls. <laughs> <laughs> Aside from the fact that there's so many things wrong with that statement, it came to my attention during one of our health lessons that the students truly believed that your urine is stored in your testicles. So... <laughs> Where did they think it was stored on females? I don't know. (laughs) Great question. (laughs) And it was a girl that brought it up and I started laughing because I assumed she was joking and then I realized she was serious. So we had to backtrack and that was the question of, well, you're a girl. Do you have testicles? No. Okay. (laughs) So it, it was kind of a really fun moment for me because as ridiculous of a question as it was, they felt safe to ask it. But it also just really drove home in this day and age with as much technology and as much constant information as we have in our faces all the time, kids still don't know anything about their bodies. Yeah, it's always so surprising. (laughs) Yeah. So it was really fun to have that moment and then realize how important and how imperative it was that they were getting access to this curriculum because they really don't know anything. So. Yeah, that was that was a super fun moment of, wow, I got to correct a major misconception. Absolutely. <laughs> they're also paying attention. They're bringing their questions to me. And so they're learning a lot in this class and it's really doing its job. Yeah. Well, you mentioned there were two moments. So what was your second moment? The other moment that was really fun, and I don't know if people who listen to this podcast check out Betsy's Instagram account at all, but we did a a one day activity of um, superhero birth control. (laughs) And I believe this was one of Mandy's previous activities that we kind of adapted and turned further into a comic strip. So the students had to create a comic strip about a birth control of their choice and show it either successfully preventing pregnancy or being unsuccessful. (laughs) So they had a super fun time with that. And ironically, I was being observed that day. So my assistant principal got to come in and watch that and had an absolute blast with it. The kids were super engaged, absolutely loved every moment of it, had a blast, interacted with the material. And even though they didn't necessarily get every detail right, they definitely learned about the importance of using birth control correctly and whether it only prevents pregnancy, whether it helps with STIs things like that. So they were really getting it. They were really engaged with it. And we just had a blast all around. Yeah, I was actually able to check out a lot of those comics. And you could very much see the learning that that kids had in your class from those from those comics. And it was really cool, the interpretations that they made um, to, to make to turn them into superheroes. That was a really cool activity. So um, describe for us how education and specifically in that class, Uh, changed after March when schools were remote for the first time? (laughs) Uh, For the record, I hate remote learning. (laughs) I'm sure I'm the first teacher ever to say that. Right? (laughs) So the hardest thing for me was that health is, it's a sensitive topic, especially when we're talking about reproductive health and your sexuality. And you need that in-person connection. 
we're teachers because we love students and so much of teaching is seeing the reactions of students, seeing their faces, seeing whether they look confused or if they look like they're getting it. Because a student can tell you all day long, oh yeah, I understand. If you can't see their expressions, you can't really read if they actually understand. And a lot of times when students have questions, if they're not okay with asking them out loud, you can still see it on their face. You can catch up with them after class. You can go have a one-on-one conversation. All of that is lost in a remote environment. So with a topic as sensitive as sexual reproduction and sexual health, it was really frustrating to go from having so much momentum and so much trust built up in the classroom to, all right, I'm going to talk at you on a screen because none of you want to turn your cameras on. And I really hope someone's on the other side listening and I'm not just talking to myself today. Yes, I, I I understand the struggles very much. Did you have any um, like strategies or anything that you tried to do to keep them engaged while you were talking about these types of topics? My main strategy the whole way through with pandemic learning, virtual learning, is that if even one student benefits from it, it's still worth it. So I try to give them my all every day as a teacher. I don't know who's listening, who's asleep, who turned their computer on and walked away. I have no control over that. The district did give us permission to require cameras to be turned on, but I don't know what students' home lives situations are. They have really valid reasons for not wanting their cameras and microphones on. I'm not going to push that. So I just did my best with what I had. I fortunately actually had about three really consistent students who stayed on with me every day. A couple of them even turned their cameras on. And at least for those three, I know it still made a difference. For the rest of them, maybe they learned something, maybe they didn't, but at least for three, we still got some learning in. Yeah, I, I, it was hard to have any other attitude as a teacher last spring, but, but uh, you know, hopefully the few that, <laughs> that are trying are gonna learn something and everybody else, Absolutely. they'll figure it out. <laughs> One of my right. students who was an active participant was also babysitting his nephew. So it was kind of at the start mm. of every class, hey, this would be a good time for your nephew to leave the room. <laughs> yeah, H- nice that you knew nephew? though. Yeah. I believe he was only four or five. Oh. Definitely a little young for this level of education. (laughs) Well, I guess with the small group of only three consistent students, it made it easier for you to know things like that. So you could adapt what you needed to when you needed to. Right. (laughs) Um, Overall, what's what's something that COVID-19 has taught you about our education system? (laughs) The importance of being face-to-face with students, 100%. Oh my goodness. I miss them. As a teacher, we feed off of those interactions. That's why we do it, you know, especially at the K through 12 level. We're not there to lecture. That's not what we signed up for. I don't know how college professors do that. I I need the kids in front of me. That's what I feed off of. That's what makes me want to wake up in the morning. And I need their body language and their responses and yeah. yeah, no, I feel the same way because even when I do lecture, I'm feeding off of them in order to do it, you know, and right. including their energy and their facial expressions. And oh, I need to stop talking now because they're clearly bored. <laughs> right. You tweak your lectures moment by moment based on the yes. feedback the room is giving you. So talking to a computer, it's not my jam at all. <laughs> yes, I would agree. So I know you're planning to use the textbook and the curriculum again this spring. Um, What changes are you thinking you might make in the way you approach this class or teach it, knowing that 
we're in a pandemic now, knowing that we're starting remote and um, that, that this is how we're learning now? That's a fantastic question. I honestly haven't thought quite that far ahead yet. So our school is doing what we fondly refer to as a quartermaster system. So we are fitting an academic year into a calendar semester. So we're starting in January with quarter five and we'll end the school year with quarter eight. So I will be teaching health quarters seven and eight. So I'll start this curriculum around March and then I'll have 10 weeks to fit in the whole semester long curriculum. Okay. So that in and of itself is <laughs> insane to me. <laughs> yes. So yeah, it's just I really will. an eighth, not a quarter, right? So right. we do the math. It's just an eighth, not a quarter. They are block schedules. So the students only take four <laughs> classes during the day now. So I get them for roughly 90 minutes at a time, which oh. is a lot. So, yeah, that's helpful. Yeah. yeah. So it'll that's, definitely... that's kind of how my, my school is doing it as well. I mean, we're... 90 minute blocks and four classes a day and yep. all my semester classes are now taught in 10 weeks and yeah and you can yeah. tell about 40 minutes in that they're fried for the day so oh yeah that's a long time <laughs> no yeah. matter how you look at it <laughs> yes yeah so definitely tweaking is necessary but I haven't quite wrapped my mind around how that's gonna look I think I'm practicing really strong avoidance techniques <laughs> <laughs> well, remember me and Betsy are here. If you, you have any questions or need any help, I've been doing this for about a year now. So <laughs> I will definitely I've, take I've you up on I've got some that. ideas. Perfect. <laughs> um, what advice do you have for other educators who are obligated to teach about reproductive health but don't feel comfortable um, or maybe they don't feel knowledgeable enough? If they're not comfortable or knowledgeable enough, I would definitely say seek out any resources that you can find. Talk to teachers who have been teaching it for a while. Uh, Mandy, of course, you were an amazing resource for me. And working with you and Betsy over the summer made me feel much more prepared to teach the course. But I guess my biggest hope would be that no one is teaching it who is obligated to teach it. Because if it's something that you dread with any topic, I mean, going back to teaching earth science my first two years, I didn't enjoy the class, so of course the kids didn't enjoy the class. And if it's a topic you enjoy, you're gonna bring life to it in a way that kids are going to remember. And I think that's what makes someone a good teacher. It's not necessarily that they know everything, but that they enjoy teaching about the topic and they enjoy learning more about it. So if you're obligated to teach it and it's not something you're into, hopefully you have administration that'll work with you to either support you the way you need it, or maybe find a different teacher to take on that material. Yeah, I think that was a great answer. I, I would agree that it's important to enjoy what you're teaching if you want to be good at it. Um, unfortunately, yeah. I do know there are people out there teaching things they don't want to. Right. Or at all. <laughs> they don't want right. to teach at all. I think, uh, you know, the, we have always said uh, the difference between a good teacher and a great, fantastic teacher is passion. You know, and uh, passion is pretty important to to bring into the classroom because if the students see that you're passionate, they almost have this obligation to to learn. Like, oh my gosh, they're trying so hard and they're so passionate. I should probably pay attention. I, I kind of like to think of it like that. Absolutely. I don't know if necessarily that's true, but I, you know, I know a lot of my students would tell me, "Oh, it was so obvious. You were so passionate about teaching, and it was just." Uh, contagious, you know, about yeah. taking something that maybe they think is ho-hum or that they, maybe they know everything about and 
turn and then realizing, oh, this is this is more interesting than I thought. Yeah. I think so too. Well, Allie, is there anything else you'd like to share with us or tell us about? Overall, it was just such a fun class. I love how comprehensive the curriculum is. I love how inclusive it is. I know a lot of our students are, I mean, we've run the whole gamut. So we have students who have almost no experience with their bodies or their own sexuality. We have students who are questioning their sexuality. We have students in transition all the way up to teen moms. And every single student who took this class still found a topic that was new or interesting or they were surprised about or even stuff that they thought they knew and they were completely wrong despite the fact that they maybe already have a kid. (laughs) So (laughs) the need for this education is so important and it just really struck me how much I truly went in with the assumption that these kids would know a lot more than they did and they don't. (laughs) So I'm very grateful for this curriculum. I'm grateful for the opportunity to teach it, especially with the science backgrounds, because when they have questions, I usually feel fairly comfortable answering them or at least finding good resources to help answer them. Um, But overall, just so happy to be teaching health. Yeah, I think maybe you should make a poster that says urine is not stored in the testicles and put it on your door. (laughs) Yeah, that might be necessary. Make a new school-wide PSA campaign. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I don't know who needs to hear this, but urine is not stored in the testicles. You know, which, which leads me to the fact that kids will hear something enough. They'll hear something that's inaccurate enough that to them it becomes a truth. They start to question their knowledge of their bladder, right? Like they know they have a bladder. They know urine comes from that. They may not know it's called a bladder, but they understand that concept. But then they're fed another lie. They're fed a lie enough that they started to question their own knowledge. And that's why when you said, you know, just a minute ago, you were surprised that they knew less than they did, you know, than you thought they would. You know, you go into the class thinking you're at this level and yet you're even lower than that. And so you have to adjust your curriculum and your planning accordingly because, you know, you're maybe at level two thinking this is where you're going to start. But you read the room and realized, oh, we need to do a little backup and refresher of knowledge here. And I think that that's what I know as teachers, we all know you have to read the room and try to figure out, you know, let's where's the middle? Where's the middle? And um, so your point is well taken that <laughs> we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> we definitely yes. do. I, every semester that I teach this, I have somebody try to tell me that I already know everything there is mm-hmm. to know. You're not going to be able to teach me anything and then get surprised that on the very first day within the first 10 minutes, they've learned something yes. they've never, never heard before. You know, usually it's the word vulva. So (laughs) many of my students have never heard that word before. Mm -hmm. They think it's a car and they truly, (laughs) so many of the girls in my, um, you know, the female bodied people, I guess, in my classes will say, I didn't, I didn't know. I had no idea. That's my own anatomy. And I didn't know. Like, yep. That's what I'm here for. Most families don't talk about this stuff at home, which it could be a lack of knowledge. It could be embarrassment. It could be personal or religious beliefs, but you know, they're not getting this education except through school or what their friends tell them or what they see and read online. And we know everything you see on the internet must be true. So, <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. 
So, so what, you know, Mandy and I are always sort of racking our brains to figure out what can we do? What can we do as educators who are, you know, driving this curriculum? What can we do to help infiltrate it or, uh, I don't know what the, a word I'm looking for, into the school system? Like for you, you know, it's, it's a great fit. It, it's allowing us to, you know, get our curriculum in there, get that textbook in there to make it less scary for parents to look at and for the students to go, wow, there's an actual book that someone's being real with us on, you know, and we can look at the subjects. So what, what other magic handshake do you have for us to be able to crack that code? <laughs> that is a fantastic question. And I, I don't know that I have a good answer. Um, I don't think she has a magic handshake. Oh. I wish I did. I really wish I did. I would say one of the hardest things about teaching is that it can be so isolated because when you're in your classroom, you are the master of your classroom and then you're in there, you know? So a lot of times we don't really get to spend a lot of time watching other teachers teach or spend time in their rooms and see what they're doing. And especially like I mentioned earlier, I only have a halftime counterpart. So my counterpart isn't teaching health as well. He's teaching classes that I don't so that we have more options for students. So at least in my building, and I, I know that's a unique situation just because we're smaller, but even in bigger schools, a lot of times departments meet, from my understanding, pretty quickly to talk about material purchases or we should be on roughly this unit at this time, but they're not necessarily always sharing, here's what went really well in this unit, or here's why I like this curriculum. Or a lot of times newer teachers don't even have the options to bring forth new curriculums. So that can definitely be really challenging. <laughs> I don't know if it looks like bringing in teachers who are interested in this curriculum and having them observe someone like Mandy as a master teacher with the curriculum in action. I don't know if it's having district level personnel observe these classes. I don't know if it's surveys and student feedback. There's lots of things we could certainly try. I just know that I'm grateful for the curriculum because it works and the students learned so much from it. And we're grateful for the student feedback and your feedback that we got from this experience as well. So thank you for that. <laughs> Appreciate it a bunch. Oh, definitely. I mean, um, yeah, we are really excited to see it working. And it just it just gives it uh, more of a platform, right? We can say, oh, well, it's been tried here, and Allie Ham did a great job with it. And and, and we want it to be user friendly, obviously, right? So um, that's that's important as well. Yeah, very much. I love that it's laid out in a really logical manner because a lot of times you get textbooks from big companies that really just don't make sense, you know, mm. and their units seem out of order or their topics don't flow cohesively and this text does all the way through. So for that alone, I would recommend it as a great resource for health or sex ed teachers, but obviously there's a lot more to it and it's a phenomenal resource. My favorite chapter had to be sexuality as we age and grow because mm -hmm. kids really have no idea of what's normal at what age and especially teenagers, they just think everything they do is abnormal and they're the only one and they're so weird and that makes them special, which we know that they're really not. <laughs> but my favorite thing was I took chapter five, sexuality as we age and grow, and I turned it into a timeline activity for them. So I picked mm. out 
key phrases or sentences from each age range. And then I had the kids put that on the timeline that they thought matched up. And I gave them the age ranges to go with it. So we have most children masturbate at the ages of three to five, but they didn't have that information all together. So they had the age range of three to five as well as zero to two, six to eight, adolescents, et cetera. So of course they assume masturbation goes with adolescents because we don't do that until we're teenagers. And when I read them the correct order, (laughs) we said that children begin to masturbate at the ages of three to five, the whole room started screaming at me. They absolutely just erupted and they said, there's no way that's so gross. Little kids don't do that. (laughs) So it was really fun again, just to totally destroy their misconceptions and show that they really don't know that much about their bodies so that they have a lot to learn. And it was just a really great chapter to put everything in order, show them what's normal, show them that they're actually really normal because we pretty much all follow the same developmental patterns and just a fun day in general. Yeah. One of, one of my favorite things to, to tell my students when we talk about um, sexuality throughout the lifetime is that you know, your grandparents still have sex. And they're like, no, <laughs> oh my God, what? <laughs> yes. And I'm like, but they're not as old as you think they are. And yeah, they do. Yeah, well, <laughs> no matter how old, yeah, <laughs> no matter how old they are, they are still doing it. <laughs> yeah, we got a similar response for that as well. <laughs> That's one of my favorite things. <laughs> yeah, I think the the normalization part or the the making it real and not making it dirty or snicker, snicker, you know, giggle, giggle kind of thing and making it a, a foundation of this is this is you. This is your body. This is like like Mandy, you know, start out saying this is the biology, psychology and sociology of being of being a person of being of making you, you know, this is what these are all the ingredients that went in. And this is how you get to, you know, cook it out and see what what, you know, develops and and but also and I know Mandy agrees with me wholeheartedly and what we talked about earlier is it takes it takes this person in front of the room to be incredibly comfortable with all the words and all the questions and all the concepts and because you have to be the most comfortable person in the room so that your kiddos are know that you're in charge and you're comfortable I think it definitely helps that I had a background teaching anatomy because they were used to hearing me talk about bodies and body parts and using correct anatomical terms. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that made it better for me teaching this course. I'm also comfortable with that anyway because I have a medical background. So I had the awesome experience of working in pre-op and post-op as well as in the OR for a couple years before I went into education. And I've seen bodies, you know, like I've scrubbed them and shaved them and seen them being cut into and a body's a body. They look a little bit different here and there, but at the end of the day, a body's a body. So that was never an issue for me, but I can see where that would be really intimidating for teachers, especially if they've never taught this material before. And especially if they don't have that type of background. And of course, kids teenagers especially oh my goodness you say the word penis and they all freak out (laughs) but you just keep going and you're like yeah I said penis okay whatever so we're reading blah 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 today and they realize as soon as they don't get a reaction out of you that there's really no point in reacting themselves and there's still topics that are more sensitive and they get goofy with them but in general if you set the stage of I'm going to be professional and we're going to talk about our bodies 
they move on pretty darn quickly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Again, just to, just to reiterate, that is why it's so important that we have teachers who who are knowledgeable, who are comfortable, and who, on top of all that, are also passionate about this topic, so that students can can really dig in and and see the importance and you know feel it. I mean, yes. like you were saying at the beginning, it's important that that the teacher cares about the topic, so that the kids can care about the topic. So. Well, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your personal experience um, with us today. Is there anything else anybody wants to share or say before we wrap up? I would just like to thank you again for the curriculum and your expertise and your time and energy that you spent helping to coach me before I started this and then the continued support. It definitely makes me feel supported in a way that I haven't often gotten as a teacher and it made the whole experience of teaching this course for the first time so much smoother than any other course that I had taken on on my own and made my own curriculum for. So the class <laughs> definitely was a success in part because of everything that you guys did for me. Thank you again, Allie. And we'd also like to thank Hannah Copeland with Peach Islander Production for all her production and editing skills today. Yay! Um, I, yay! I, <laughs> well, you guys have a great night. Thanks for... Thanks, Ellie. You too. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for, for joining us. Yeah. We'll yeah. See you soon. So, Mandy, she was, it was good to talk to her again and reconnect. And it yeah. sounds like she's doing a bang up job in the class. And I was just really glad to see that. Yeah. It was really good to see her again and to uh, be able to to hear her experiences with the curriculum. And I hadn't talked to her about what it was like going remote for her either. And I thought that was really nice to hear that she had the same or similar struggles to, to oh. what you know everybody was facing. I mean, despite it being a really interesting class and, and being a class that I know kids liked and wanted to be at, there were the same struggles when we went remote as anybody else had. Oh, definitely. Because when I saw her earlier in the day, she indicated that the same things that she did today is you can't see their faces. You can't read their reactions. You don't know what's going on. Um, those things are important, especially with this topic, to develop sort of a safe environment. I think I'm really glad in some regard to hear that she feels very supported by us and, and yeah. by Look Both Ways and our curriculum. Unfortunately, it's, I guess the flip side of that is, is that there's not a lot of that out there in other topics. So I guess we're really doing that right. And that's a good thing. And I will yeah, keep I doing that for anybody. <laughs> just wish more people knew that there was a resource out there to help if they need it. You know? Yep. Well, you know, <laughs> one teacher at a time, one day at a time. That's all you can do. This podcast was created to promote Look Both Ways and the textbook written by Dr. Betsy Cairo. Look Both Ways is a nonprofit organization based in Loveland, Colorado, with a mission to educate our youth about their reproductive health to make informed decisions for their future. We do this by educating the educators through professional development, and we also put on free conferences for both teens and parents of teens and preteens. Textbooks used in schools are donated by Look Both Ways to eliminate the money obstacle for schools interested in piloting or adopting our curriculum and textbook. As a nonprofit, we are always fundraising and accepting donations. For more information about Look Both Ways, our fundraising efforts, or to make a donation, please visit www.lookbothways, 
www.lookbotbots.us. That's www.lookbotbots.us. This is Dr. B. And Mandy Johnson wishing you well. Be sure and catch all of our episodes of It's Not Human Sexuality on Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mandy? I had a fruit and veggie smoothie. <laughs> um, so, yeah. It's just like Pop-Tarts, only with, with nutrients. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's just like Pop-Tarts, but different. You know, delicious like Pop-Tarts, but with nutrients. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. And a, a little less crunchy.